Hello and welcome to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMagan, a senior editor with the Mises Institute. And uh, with me today is uh, my associate editor, Tho Bishop. And uh, we're back. And this time we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court and uh, the upcoming nomination for it and, and whether we should really care uh, all that much. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, what we've been told about the Supreme Court really isn't quite accurate, and maybe we're putting a little bit too much faith in this institution and counting on it as a very, very important part of the federal government. And Tho, who's worked in Washington, he'll offer a little bit more uh, commentary from uh, giving us an insider's view. And Tho, right now, the, uh, the new nominee is Amy Coney Barrett. And... Uh, what should we think of her? Is is she a pretty good uh, nominee from our perspective? That is, she isn't as bad as she could be. What do you think? You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that she is not an Ivy League, uh, you know, has an Ivy League background. Um, that's a problem, I think, that exists not only within the judiciary, but uh, the, the Fed. We get a lot of group think from people coming from common institutions. Um, she's from Notre Dame. By all accounts, you know, she's a, a very... Uh, a, skilled legal mind um, with a you know, large background, both in academia, and she was confirmed a few years ago for another uh, federal appointee. So she has a record of being confirmed by the Senate, which I think made her attractive in the sped up process. Uh, in terms of her judicial philosophy, the name that's thrown out there as a comparison most often is Scalia. Um, and you know, Scalia had you know, many rulings that uh, you know we would find uh, egregious. Um, you know, Tom Woods and Kevin Getzman's uh, "Who Killed the Constitution." I know that they they pick out several in there that uh, are deserving of scrutiny. But you know, I, I think Scalia is considered one of the better, you know, relative to a lot of you know, some of the members of the Supreme Court of late. Um, again, it's I mean, what, what's your benchmark there, though? So that is what you're kind of looking at there. And obviously, this is something that I think um, movement conservatives had had been hoping for. And she had kind of gotten this sort of uh, her own little following as being the the the, the RBG replacement for a while. Um, you know, it was clear from the beginning that Trump wanted a, a woman to fill this position. Um, so I think that this was a definitely a, a pick that appeased the base. And obviously, I mean, that strong Catholic background there. Um, for some of the cultural and social issues is, uh, you know, obviously something that Trump is kind of leaning into uh, going into an election cycle. Um, though the question there is, you know, how, how much this, you know, can this backfire by motivating some others? But uh, we shall see. Yeah, I think what you don't want is someone who's basically a clone maybe of Clarence Thomas. And uh, because while Scalia was often good on civil liberties things and police state things, not always, but often, Thomas was usually bad on those things. Thomas never seemed to meet a pro-police uh, state uh, issue that he didn't side with the state on uh, in terms of searches and seizures and that sort of thing. And so we have to remember the larger context here. Everybody's so obsessed with leftist social policy and all that right now. But keep in mind what happened in the 20 years prior to that. We're still saddled with a lot of the stuff about privacy and TSA and anti-terrorist stuff that we got uh, under the Bush administration, which met the approval of a lot of so-called conservative judges who were on the court. And they really helped save a lot of that. That was one of the places where RBG was actually good, was a lot on uh, that uh, civil rights stuff. So. Yeah, I don't want like a Kavanaugh or another uh, 
Justice Thomas uh, on there, someone who's maybe more like Gorsuch uh, or like Scalia, not like Kavanaugh. That's probably the best you can hope for from uh, a Republican president. And she does have some good quotes out there. I mean, again, quotes taken for what it's worth. But you know, she's talking about you know, a judge who likes every result that she reaches is not a very good judge. I mean, I think a lot of this is important, just kind of building up that, you know, the, the big concern is that, oh, well, she's going to impose, uh, you know, theocracy onto America, which, you know, you, you always have to have a hyperbolic uh, boogeyman dealing with any modern political issue. Uh, but she's also stressed that, still, look, like, you know, people who are not religious uh, still have deeply held moral convictions. And so, like, you, you have, uh, you know, it, your, your framework and in, in look at the world, it, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. There's going to be a moral ethical framework that you're evaluating from. And I think that that's one of the things, again, it's, it's you know, the announcement was made a few weeks ago. Now we've gone through several news cycles because of how crazy uh, uh, the, the modern uh, world is, particularly in 2020. Um, you know, but this was the major issue, the you know, concern a few weeks ago was that, you know, you, you know, a lot of people on the left, uh, are freaking out and, and going way overboard in their attacks on, you know, anybody that held a Christian viewpoint. Um, so, you know, when we see hearings kind of arise, whether, whether that comes back up in the forefront, I think it's going to be, uh, uh, something interesting. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, she seems, and, and I know that she's also had a very good record on gun rights. Um, which is one of the issues where the court has actually played a very valuable role um, in recent years in kind of pushing back on uh, kind of a, a a trend that was you know infringing upon uh, uh, that issue. Um, so that's something else that I mean, she even went to the extent I think defending uh, the rights of felons to own a gun, um, which I, I think is a pretty strong uh, defensive. You know, what would you consider any natural law in that regard, which is very promising? Yeah, most of my criticisms of what I've seen by her would be that she's just too mainstream on stuff and not libertarian enough, obviously. And so that would mean then that most of the criticisms leveled against her, like like she's a, a theocrat. I mean, obvious nonsense, not, not going to happen, not really a threat uh, to anybody. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I, that's, I haven't heard from the mainstream media or the left any criticisms that are actually valid, although there's certainly reasons to criticize her. Now, nevertheless, we're being told that Trump should wait until after the election to appoint this judge. And uh, that seems like a weird thing. I mean, the Constitution is pretty straightforward that if you're president, you get to appoint judges and uh, assume he doesn't die in the meantime, uh, Trump is going to be president until January, um, and he could appoint a judge with Senate confirmation. The sitting Senate that's currently sitting, because the new Senate won't be sworn until January either, uh, at any time. This is quite clear in the Constitution. So why is it that we're supposed to wait? It's because the Democrats have no other cards to play, right? If if you are outarmed, then you're, you're you try to just kind of delay things and and kind of make something up. And so what they're trying to rely upon is uh, a wheeled hypocrisy. Uh, you know, because of uh, the, the lack of vote on uh, Merrick Garland under, you know, when you had Obama, you know, appointing him after Scalia's death with the Republican Senate. Of course, the difference there is that, you know, Republicans have the votes this time. Obama did not have the votes in the past. And, uh, you know, when you have the votes, you, you make you have the power. And uh, the idea that uh, Mitch McConnell or, or that any politician, any, any effective political leader, is going to uh, allow the opposition to uh, restrain them uh, by wagging their finger and saying hypocrite. I mean, that's that's a, a normal day in politics. 
Um, but, but so that's the argument. And I, I think they realize that it's a losing battle. Um, I think everyone expects uh, Cocaine Mitch to, to whip up the votes. And this is the one thing he does really, really well <laughs> is, is pushing through judicial appointments. Um, and, and this is one of the big advantages that Trump had going in here, not just with Supreme Court, but uh, throughout the federal judiciary is that you had a lot of open judicial appointments that Harry Reid did not get through. Um, and so uh, Mitch McConnell's team has been taking advantage of that void. Uh, but you know, they're going you know, to the, the argument would be hypocrisy. It is not going to be particularly effective. And I think that we're going to end up having a, a Justice Coney Barrett, uh, particularly considering that the fact that again, when the, the biggest uh, amount of uh, the, the biggest criticism they've mounted has been uh, outrage that she adopted children from Haiti. Uh, if, if that's the best that they can do, uh, they're going to have some problems going forward. <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, and of course, there's no real hypocrisy at all, right? The argument wasn't that you just shouldn't appoint a president in the last six months or whatever. The argument was the president doesn't have the vote in the Senate and we don't have to approve a, uh, a new justice if we don't want to because we're the Senate. And that's just basic checks and balances sort of thing written in there. The Senate isn't, wasn't required to uh, really approve anybody ever. They could stall indefinitely and they wouldn't be in violation uh, of Article One or anything else, and that yes, as you say, that's the way it works, right? You have different branches of government, and and they have power in a certain way to approve or not approve things. It's called a a veto of sorts, and so yeah, I I just don't see the problem here, uh, and uh, that brings us to the the larger issue, right? Well, you wanted to talk a little bit about if if they hadn't done what Harry Reid wanted to do. Uh, which was eliminate the uh, the filibuster on this, then the Dems in, at this point would be in a better position to actually force maybe a more middle of the road judge. They might not have been able to prevent approval uh, in toto, but they would have had more power. But instead, they got rid of that. So now all you need is a majority vote. Right. I mean, and particularly in this environment, like I mean, it's, it's weird, like looking back and just seeing how. And some of these votes went down in the past and, you know, you kind of had this, you know, both sides kind of working together philosophy, which in many ways is exactly it was a big problem with the 20th century that you know, both sides got along, way, uh, got along together way too well. Um, but in t- today's hyperpartisan environment, like you would not be able to get a judge like Amy Coney Barrett uh, if you still had that 60 vote threshold. And, and I think that's one of the things that's often missed is, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, political acceleration and, and, you know, boiling tensions and things like that. But, you know, just as important, perhaps more importantly, in the federal level, in the way that the, the governance is happening in D.C., we're seeing a decay of political norms. You know, these unspoken aspects that, you know, they're of, of the rule. And, you know, Harry Reid, you know, using the nuclear option on not just uh, judicial, federal judicial appointments, which includes the Supreme Court, uh, but also cabinet positions. Uh, it, that, that's a major, major change to the way that business is done. And, uh, and th- this is continuing. You know, I, I know we're going to address the, the conversations about stacking the court. Well, again, like, that is a way of ignoring political norms. Um, this discussion of getting rid of the legislative filibuster entirely so that you do not need 60 votes in the Senate to get something through. Um, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell is kind of a traditionalist in this regard. So like, I, I'm, I'm not too surprised that, uh, uh, he didn't bow to that, but I know that's something that Trump really wanted. 
And I think that's one of the really interesting things here is that Trump, I think, has escalated the Republican side of things, their willingness to to combat these political norms. So I think throughout the 20th century, a lot of the a lot of this came from the left. I mean, FDR, uh, for example, I mean, everything that he did, there's there's a lot of you know, he didn't care about political norms when it came to to getting through the agenda that he thought was was important. Um, but I, I think Trump has really undercut that sort of uh, conservative, oh, you know, we need to get along to get along sort of mentality. Um, and, and Newt Gingrich kind of had that, too. So I'm not going to say that, you know, Trump's really a, kind of a pioneer here. But uh, that, I think, is one of the lasting impacts that Trump's going to have on the Republican Party that excel- that's accelerating this political environment in ways that, you know, it. it that are not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, if we if we view if we identify the lack of common ground uh, that that is existing with a you know a lot of significant fundamental differences of of view amongst Americans, then unity is not not a value in that regard. And so this, I think, this is something that makes the current political environment so interesting and something different than maybe that we we would have seen you know eighties, seventies, definitely the nineties. Um, and it's something that, that perhaps deserves a little bit more attention uh, from critics of government. So for those of us who live outside the Beltway and have never lived there and don't really like those people, uh, we have a certain view of Supreme Court judges. I mean, when when a position opens up on the court, what is the feeling uh, in Washington? Is this is this really an opportunity then to to change the ideological leanings of the court? Is it seen more as a partisan thing? What 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 is from an insider's view? What what is the thinking about what is the proper way to appoint new judges to the court? I really think that I mean it it, it is one of the biggest moments that's out there. I mean, like in the in the way that that people want, like they 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 view the judges as like this. This, this, you know, almost kind of, you know, uh, uh, robed nobility. I right? guess you know, they're, they're the ones that are supposed to, that, you know, supposed to be beyond politics. You know, they're the ones that uh, there's a lot of recognition that the court has a lot of uh, a power in the, you know, the underlying aspects of what the federal government does. And so it is one of those moments that, and particularly with this weird cult uh, following that, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, you know, ended up developing and, and really she leaned into it. I mean, like this, this is, you know, she absolutely loved, uh, you know, this, this kind of weird pop culture phenomenon that she had with her that I think was really kind of force. You know, I, I don't know if a lot of people that are not, uh, uh hyper politically active quite, uh, quite felt the same way about her, but, um, you know, this, it is one of those kind of moments that makes everyone in DC circles stop. Um, and, uh, I think that's one of, one of the issues, right? You know, we, we give far more authority and, and deference to this body than we should. And then obviously, you know, was ever kind of originally intended. And, uh, but the, you know, no one has had a better PR firm, no institution in, in America has had a better PR firm working for them than uh, the Supreme Court, outside of maybe uh, our, our general class. Well, and of course, some of the awe over the court is warranted because in a sense, nowadays, the way the court does things and has done things since the New Deal, really, uh, is that a ruling for the Supreme Court essentially acts as a constitutional amendment. 
And you can see uh, the difference. If you look at uh, the political history of, say, the 1920s and the 19-teens, if you wanted any significant change to the political status quo, it was recognized you needed a politic- you needed a constitutional amendment. So there were all sorts of amendments circulating in the teens and 20s, amendments about child labor, of course, amendments about uh, alcohol, which uh, was passed, of course, with prohibition and then later repealed partly because it was recognized that the only way you could get the feds to start regulating alcohol was to have a constitutional amendment. It was only a few decades later that we decided, no, you don't need a constitutional amendment, just have the Supreme Court rule on it. And that is something that fundamentally changed after mid-century, probably really after FDR, where we don't need a constitutional amendment to federalize uh, abortion. We just have the court say that it's now a federal issue. We don't need... Uh, a constitutional amendment to to say that the federal government can regulate uh, marijuana will just have the Supreme Court say that it's fine. Uh, now, there are some earlier examples, like the court and uh, the presidency and Congress all kind of agreed together in the late 19th century that immigration uh, regulation was now a federal issue. And uh, But of course, then the court started to back that up. Prior to that, the courts had taken the position that the states could regulate it and that it was primarily a state issue. Naturalization being totally separate was what the feds uh, had purview over. Um, now, of course, anti-immigration people don't, don't like to hear that. Uh, but, you know, sorry. <laughs> the fact is, is, it's not a federal issue in the Constitution at all. Uh, the courts just like uh, like on Roe v. Wade didn't about face and just say, oh, this is a federal issue now, and uh, that's that's pretty that's a lot of power that uh, the court can wield. However, at the same time, it seems the court's able to get away with this stuff to a large extent because we've created this whole mythology ab- around it that the Supreme Court is filled with these deep thinkers and they're non political and they they get the case before them and. The, and they 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 sit down and they think real hard about what the the proper ruling is, and then the, then they issue and everyone says, ah, oh, that that is what the Constitution really says, I guess, or that's the the right answer, or whatever that means. Of course, there is no right answer uh, in in political issues like this, and uh, I think they've managed to get away with that uh, for a very long time. And even though the court in many cases has been packed with people who are explicitly politicians, a perfect case in point being Earl Warren, who was just a regular old politician. He ran for president. He threw his support behind Eisenhower in, uh, 1952. And, oh, I, what a crazy coincidence. He got appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, a little while later. Yeah. <laughs> But this idea that he certainly went from just regular old politician to deep, deep thinker who was unswayed by uh, political ideologies is obviously nonsense. But it's it seems to hold a lot of cachet with people. Well, not to get too conspiratorial, but I mean, I think a lot of the reason why you know, this this mythology has been allowed to build up is because the Supreme Court has tended to go along with the federal government more often than not on, on all this major stuff, right? They, they, a lot of their major actions, I think, have, have tended to be striking down state laws and things like that. You know, obviously the most obvious one in, in recent uh, history was the, the Obama, you know, giving their stamp of approval on Obamacare um, with, with some very, very sketchy uh, a judicial logic there. Um, and, you know, but if, if the Supreme Court had been an, had, had been an active uh, spur, you know, an active uh, uh, sore 
and, and a pain in the side of the federal agenda, I think that there would be a lot more hostility there, uh, you know, at the expense of their respect within Washington circles. And I think that's one of the big concerns that's out there beyond simply, you know, losing a a big blue piece for a, a new red piece from Team Dynamics. There's a lot of concern that, you know, a Justice Coney Barrett could end up being a threat to Obamacare. Uh, could be a threat to some of the the legislation that's come out from the federal level, and I think that's definitely something that uh, is is baking into why they see this as such a a great threat. Well, that's a excellent and very important point. Is the court does not like to be humiliated. They don't want to hand down a ruling that they don't think is going to be actually enforced. So very rarely, if ever, I can't think of really any example except maybe for the case where. Uh, The court declared uh, Andrew Jackson's Indian removal scheme to be unconstitutional, and the president just ignored him. And that was humiliating for the court, and they don't like to do that thing. So the court's usually only going to uh, rule in in the sort of way where they're pretty sure that at least one of the other branches of government is going to have their back, whether the presidency or Congress. So there's going to be some sort of significant group within the federal government that's going to agree with the court and help the court uh, ensure that they're ruling is actually enforced. You very seldom do you see the court actually pick a fight that it may not be able to win. So, I mean, it's just simply not going against the zeitgeist in Washington uh, hardly ever. If it makes some revolutionary ruling, it's because it thinks it can count on some other powers in Washington to have its back. And uh, yeah, it's not this thing out there acting on its own, separate from the political pressures in D.C. It knows very well uh, what's going on in D.C., what the current environment is, and what it think it can get away with. The idea that Justice Roberts is independent from politics, I think it's just it's a lot of wishful thinking there. Yeah, people aren't nearly cynical enough uh, about the Supreme Court. And, and I don't know why people act like cynicism is some bad thing, um, it, because it's not. <laughs> so when you're thinking about the court, you're thinking about the Fed, you're thinking about uh, all these technocrats out there who are making decisions in the shadows, you should probably be a lot more more cynical uh, than you are. And uh, this brings us uh, to the issue then of uh, court packing. And uh, this has come up. Uh, it came up during the debate. The question was, uh, for Biden, will you pack the court uh, when you're president? Because now these uh, dastardly Republicans are going to have, uh, in some cases, really, kind of a six-seat majority uh, on the court. And so what are you going to do about that? Because that's not allowed, apparently. And uh, he wouldn't answer whether he was willing to pack the court or not. Now, packing the court, it's totally constitutional. All it requires is a change in statute. Uh, certainly no amendment is required. And all, all it means is you change the size of the Supreme Court. And the court has varied in size over the centuries. There is no, uh, There was no carved in stone edict handed down from the Almighty that the court shall have nine people on it. You could even have an even number of people, whatever. Uh, and so why shouldn't Biden pack the court. I know that the court itself is generally opposed to packing because uh, the, the court doesn't want to have a whole lot of judges. They don't want their status quo screwed up. Also, if the uh, Senate, of course, starts adding a bunch of people, or if Congress starts adding a bunch of people to the court, it will then be much harder to deny that the court is essentially 
a political institution, right? Of course, oh, look, we'll just, we'll just add a few judges until we get the majority that we want. And uh, yeah, it's fine. Let's just do that. And then another party comes in and maybe they'll add some more uh, judges. And so then that makes it more clear to everybody that this is a political institution that Congress manipulates in order to get the rulings it wants. Now, in the long term, that actually strikes me as maybe not a terrible idea. In fact, I've suggested uh, in the past, I've even written articles saying we should pack the Supreme Court uh, because, <laughs> to, to really expose the fact that the court is a highly uh, political institution and also to really reflect the, the fact that it's, it's silly and nonsensical to think that nine people could represent the interests of 325 million uh, Americans and rewrite the Constitution uh, in such a way that, that they claim represents those people. Uh, I, all the way up to, I said, hey, maybe we should even do a, a thing where there's 50 Supreme Court judges. And we all agree that every state gets their own Supreme Court judge. Uh, yeah, why not? That's uh, I don't see why that would be any morally uh, superior to the current system we have now, where we just kind of by the way, the, the majority on the court is usually overwhelmingly D.C. judges. There's very little representation from the rest of the country outside the, the East Coast. Trump would be uh, really changing the, uh, the face of the court by adding some people from the Midwest and the West, uh, Gorsuch being from the West. Most of these guys are all like New England, Washington, D.C. people. So why not have a bunch more judges representing other parts uh, of the country. Uh, and this this whole thing goes back to FDR as, as a political tactic, uh, goes back to FDR, who wasn't getting the decisions he wanted from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kept striking down a lot of his New Deal legislation under uh, Justice, uh, well, involving Justice Owen Roberts, who then famously switched his vote and uh, started ruling in favor of uh, Roosevelt's preferred legislation. This is called the switch in time that saved nine. I know that um, historians now debate whether Roberts really changed his position all that much, but certainly it continues to be a sizable uh, group of scholars who accept that, yeah, Roberts really did change at least his vote some of the time in order to, to prevent FDR from following through on his court packing scheme. And you, you can even go back to 1937's uh, Fireside Chat, where FDR talks about the court packing scheme. He invents this totally silly and absurd notion that uh, the three branches of the federal government are all horses. They're a three-horse team, and they all need to be pulling together and moving in exactly the same direction. And the Supreme Court isn't doing what the president and the Congress are doing. So therefore, we need to change uh, the makeup of the Supreme Court so the court starts agreeing uh, with Congress and the presidency. This is, of course, the exact opposite of how the whole branch of government scheme is supposed to work. They're supposed to cancel each other out. But I guess the Rubes in 1930 found that sort of thing uh, convincing. And But he wasn't able to, to follow through on it. Uh, the judge, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court decided, oh, yeah, well, maybe we can play along with FDR because we don't want a bunch of uh, new judges on here. And ever since then, it's been kind of verboten to do that. Uh, but what's your opinion on court packing? Wait, I have to give you credit, uh, you know, not only have you been writing about it, but this was before it was cool, right? Like bef before the left was getting on board with it. Because I mean, this was during the Obama years where, you know, if, if you had brought up court packing through to most of uh, you know, the people that worship, you know, West Wing and, and listen to Pod Save America, they, they would have thought that you were a, a crazy person. Um, but so you, you had been out there before this became a mainstream idea on the left. Um, again, I, I, I think that 
if you know one of the biggest mistakes that uh, it, out there would be trying to fix the federal government, right? The, the idea that that all we need is is a legitimate, uh, a well-respected uh, uh, federal government that just abides by good old American classical liberal ideas, and that's that's the solution to all the problems. No, that's never going to happen. It's it's a wishful thing, and so I think anything that highlights the uh, uh, you know how much of a joke this <laughs> that the stru- these structures are. You know, these are not the federal government as it exists today. Is, is not about defending your your natural rights or uh, your constitutional rights or anything like that. It's it's there to impose its will on the rest of of the United States. And I think that something like court packing, I think, would be just the next great escalation of this destruction of these political norms uh, that has been so important, in creating this facade of, uh, uh, you know, a, a noble federal government. Um, and and it, what would be interesting to see is the reaction to that. Um, I think that, you know, I think normal people would, you know, I don't fault like normal people for not picking up on like the importance of changing a 60 vote rule to a 50 vote rule on judicial nominees. I think once you start seeing more people in robes, like that's a visual that I think people kind of pick up on. Um, and that's what I'm interested to see. Again, I, if, you, if you have a Biden presidency and a Justice Amy Co- uh, Coney Barrett, I think this is one of those issues that immediately brings into this divide between uh, Joe Biden style Democrats and the new left Democrats in terms of how far they're willing to go with the numbers that they have. Cause you still have just the same way that Mitch McConnell is at heart, a Senate romantic. Um, and yeah, that's why he hasn't gone after the filibuster. Like there's something there where they, they, they still have this very romantic picture of what that body is. I think Joe Biden, I mean, that's just part of being in there for, you know, 40 plus years is they kind of have like this, this romantic rose tinted glasses on these things. And I think that he would really have to kind of, you know, I, I think that he would be against that. Now, how much power a Joe Biden president would actually have within the modern Democratic Party is uh, a, a separate question. I tend to think that uh, uh, not much, uh, particularly given his uh, uh strong uh, personality these days but you know a, a senator kamala or a president kamala harris uh i think would probably be a, l- a lot more open to that uh but i i think that this is this is a topic that's not going away and the fact that it's become mainstream i think it's a reflection of where uh washington really is and why the idea that oh you, you still have so many people that think that oh if you remove trump we're going to return to the golden days of uh uh, you know, Ob- the Obama administration, or even perhaps more uh, uh, delusionally, the that, that 90s West Wing nostalgic, you know, sort of time. And it's like, obviously that's not going to happen. You know, the, the, the bridges from both sides, you know, there's no going back to that, I, I think, for, for a variety of different reasons. And uh, again, I think court packing is it's not going away. And I think that's going to be kind of the next frontier in terms of people recognizing that what's happening in Washington is not normal. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, the left keeps threatening to, quote unquote, burn it all down. Um, now, from the uh, uh, the metaphorical side on that, of course, I don't want to physically burn things down. But metaphorically, sure, go ahead and be careful what you wish for, I think is <laughs> 
what 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 they would face because so much of the uh, the complacency you get from just regular old mainstream middle class Americans out in other states is that they they bought into all these myths about the uh, the power of government and and being obedient to these important institutions and if 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 you're not then then chaos reigns and so on and uh and that's why i think up until really recently and, and there are of course still strains in it especially among the old timers this idea that well whatever the supreme court hands down we got to follow so if the supreme court says that all your guns are illegal now um i know there's those people out there who claim you can pry the gun from my cold dead hands and so on eh, i've <laughs> The behavior I've seen from most uh, conservatives and Republicans leads me to believe they'll just do what they're told. And uh, because the Supreme Court says so, because uh, an institution with an American flag waving over it told him to do it. And as time goes on, though, it seems maybe there's a little less uh, enthusiasm about uh, believing all these things that are handed down. And then at some point, you, if you start to force the issue, then you've packed the court, you've made it cl- abundantly clear that D.C. politicians have no interest in representing all those uh, people in flyover country who are deplorables and human garbage and so on. At some point, those people are going to stop believing in all these institutions they were brainwashed in grade school to regard as august and important. And then the Supreme Court starts handing down decisions. Then the Fed start handing down laws. And the locals don't follow them. And then what do you do? You send in U.S. marshals to force them to do, to follow these rules. That's when things start to get pretty sticky. And uh, given the personnel available in Washington versus the personnel that exists at state and local institutions, uh, not to mention issues of uh, state national guardsmen maybe being unwilling to fire on their own community members and so on, uh, things might start to get uh, a a little more touch and go. But yeah, if the left wants to burn it all down and with it all those institutions that have been relied upon to actually convince people to follow the rules, then uh, then sure, go ahead. Because what you're asking for is uh, is people to stop listening to what you're saying then in Washington. And so the left would basically be undermining itself by doing that. Now, of course, I don't really disagree with that agenda overall. I do think that those institutions should be undermined. I just don't think they they understand what they're doing, maybe. I, I think they're so uh, thirsty for power that they think it will just be real easy then to force people to do their will through institutions of violence, like the military, federal officers, and so on. But um, things might not work out that way. And we're already seeing lots of people writing, even in mainstream um, publications like the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Chicago Tribune, left-wing writers saying, well, maybe maybe a split is in our future. Maybe we can't really make a go of it. And maybe what we really do need is at least two new separate countries. And this is shocking that people would say that now. And uh, outside of the usual uh, sources of, of that opinion. And so I think that does really reflect, I think, a view that a lot of these institutions and the, and the amount of faith people put in them is starting to break down. So we're going to have to leave it at there uh, for this week. Um, Thank you for joining us on Radio Rothbard. And Tho and I hope to be back again in the future, maybe talking a little bit about uh, next time democracy and what we can do uh, to make it less bad and maybe some of the problems uh, that go into uh, our particular American version 
of uh, democracy. And so uh, tune in next time. Uh, We'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks.